Bienvenidos and welcome to the histories of Mexico. Episode 7, Tabasco Part 5, The Guns Never Ceased Their Work. We are currently enjoying the sounds of Tabascan native Dora Maria, La Chaparra de Oro, as she sings her song Sobre el Grijalva, or Along the Grijalva, in English. And all rights belong to the RAC Recording Company and the Dora Maria Estate. We last heard Dora Maria in episode 3, where she serenaded us with her song called Villa Hermosa. This time around, her song refers to the river and the carefree feeling its emerald waters can evoke, as well as the joyous attitudes of the people who live along its shores and have relied on its life-giving waters to survive for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. It also has a deeper meaning for us, as in this episode, we will cover the life and accomplishments of the man from whom the river got its name, Juan de Grijalva. But that will come a little later, after we properly set the stage for his arrival. Before I get going, I will once again remind everyone to send any comments, corrections, or concerns to the email, thehistoriesofmexico at gmail.com, and check out the website, thehistoriesofmexico.com, where I unfortunately have not kept up with the supplemental pages, having only completed the first two episodes worth. But I wanted to keep moving ahead in the recordings, as I will be a very busy lad with the holidays coming up and an event that a few local teams are participating in currently underway. A little sporting event known as the World Cup. Perhaps you've heard of it. This brings me to my first bit of news, specifically the topic of the first supplemental episode, which will come out as soon as I finish writing and recording it. The topic will be on the national soccer team of Mexico. I don't know its length yet, nor do I know the totality of its scope, but I do know I'm going to write it and release it along with some announcements regarding the future of the podcast, so do stay tuned for that. The second bit of things I need to get out of the way is a quick disclaimer. In this episode, I use the term the Spanish, not to describe the amazing and richly cultured inhabitants of modern Spain but rather I use it as a convenient shorthand to refer to the colonizing Spanish that came to the New World in the 15th and 16th century with imperial and subjugationist designs. Let me make it clear, the guys who came over to colonize are not in any way representative of the average Spanish citizen even back in those times, and a large number of the population would have been appalled at the actions of some of their representatives in the New World. However, for simplicity's sake, you will hear me make generalist-sounding statements about the Spanish. But let's be frank, it's a lot quicker to just say the Spanish than the 16th century Spanish who came over with imperialist and subjugationist intent. So I just wanted to get that disclaimer out of the way so as not to offend any of my very close Spanish friends or listeners. But let's not dawdle any longer and get right into our recap. In our last episode, we covered the classical sites such as Comalcalco, Tortuguero, and Moral Reforma, 
which are located in Tabasco, as well as their interactions with the empire-minded Palenque, while also discussing the tribe that founded the magnificent Chapin city, Los Celtals. Today we will move away from the Zeltal lands in the jungled interiors of southern Tabasco and move back north as we briefly transition out of the post-classical and advance the historical narrative towards the beginning of the colonial era. Towards that end, let's have a quick refresher on the main characters of the post-classical in Tabasco, Los Chocos. When we last covered the Chontal historically, all the way back in episode 4, the strong father lion, we had gone over how they established a capital in Potonchan and developed a political structure with a Taba Ko at the head of an assembly of eight subordinate Kos who presided over the eight provinces known as Little Pumas. Their interactions with the migrating tribes of the Toltecs and the Tutulxihues would yield them lands in southern Campeche, which they would establish as a second Chontal administrative province, which historians believe might have been the location of the fabled Acalan. Now, Acalan, if you'll remember, was known as the land of the canoe people, and was mentioned during our discussions of the three possible migrations of the Choco people when they first arrived in Tabasco according to Dr. Diogenes Lopez Reyes. If you'll recall, out of the three proposed migrations, one group chose to go south towards the Pacific Ocean and became the Oaxacan Chontal. Another trekked east towards the central Mexican Valley and either stumbled their way into the growing Olmec society or, as some theories paint it, in fact founded the Olmec civilization while a third went north along the Gulf Coast and into Northern America, possibly becoming the Potones, which also possibly founded a city called Ocala, extracted gold and silver from the Appalachian Mountains in Georgia, and became the first link in a massive supply chain of precious metals to be sent into the wider Central American markets via the Mississippi River and spreading out across the Gulf of Mexico. This Putun ethnicity was likely born out of a blend of Mayan and Nahua ethnicities constantly mixing in the area throughout the formative and classical. We also mentioned how they were outstanding sailors and their influence would spread throughout most of the Mayan world thanks to their preferred vocation of mercantilism. The way they sailed, traded, and connected the many separate peoples of pre-Hispanic Mesoamerica really does make them seem like the Phoenicians of their time. The branch of Putunes who settled in northeastern Tabasco at the site of Potonchan would be renamed as the Chontal, as we have mentioned. But the Putunes who settled into the southern Campeche lands, back then known as Chacan Putum, would maintain their Putun identification despite likely being the same peoples as the Chocos of Potonchan. All these names can get a bit confusing, so we will do this. When talking about the post-classical Chontal of Potonchan, we will use the word Chocos. When talking about the post-classical Chontal of Chacan Putum, we will use Putuns. And when talking about modern Chocos and Putuns, we will use the word Chontal. Hopefully I didn't just make everything more confusing. But the chore of untangling the maze of names and ethnic identities is just one of those joys you get from studying this historically complex topic. And so the Putunes and Chocos founded their administrative provinces, sometimes referred to as caciques. 
One was established in northern Tabasco called Tabaco, or Our Lord of the Eight Tigers, and its capital in Potonchan. The second in Chacamputum, called Acalan, Land of the Canoe People, with its capital most likely called Itzamacanac, a city which archaeologists believe is located at the modern-day site of El Tigre in southern Campeche. These sites would maintain close contact with each other, and the Putunes would constantly be migrating between these two population centers via the jungle and river routes they established for these very purposes. Despite its status as a Putun capital, Itzamacanac was too far from the waterways to become a major player in the regional trade and politics, though it still held a status of importance to the Putun people themselves. We will discuss the archaeological site, El Tigre, that still stands to this day when we get to Campeche. However, a city that we previously brushed over during the discussions of the classical sites will now be given a bit more context, as it truly flourished as a Chontal waypoint utilized by the Putunes in Itzamacanac and the Chocos in Potonchan to both control the local trade through the rivers that flowed through its lands and keep constant communication with one another. The brushed-over site of Honuta, spelled with an X, was actually called Honuchta by the native Putuns with two possible meanings. The first is place where the Honotes abound, with the word Honote coming from the sound of Hono, being related to the word for a certain type of plant called Shono, which grows abundantly in this region. Or it could also be translated as place of the five great lords, which instead might be a reference to the vital commercial function this site served as a waypoint between the two greater Chontal provinces. As such, it is believed a conference was held in Honochta between five powerful Mayan rulers of the surrounding area who would possibly meet to resolve any trade disagreements or disputes, establish market prices, or simply reaffirm whatever commitments they may have made to one another in the past. Its splendor had begun to wane by the time the Spanish arrived, however, and its next phase of occupation would be dictated by the constant pirate attacks that plagued the Gulf Coast of Mexico and any population centers unfortunate enough to be within striking distance of the rivers that led into the interior. Similar to how the Vikings utilized England's many rivers to navigate around the feeble naval defenses and terrorize the unassuming locals during the late 8th century, so too would English pirates utilize the watery highways of Mexico to exact terrible raids on the unassuming locals who were sorely underprepared to deal with gunpowder weaponry. Soon these rivers and their ability to be navigated by hostile forces will come into play when we encounter the French and American incursions into Villahermosa. But for now, let's stick to our relative time period and circle back to these hostile river campaigns when the narrative catches up to the events. As we move north away from Akalan capital Itzamakanak and continue past Honuchta, we arrive back at Potonchan, which sat at the mouth of the confluence of the Grijalva and Usamacinto rivers as they feed into the Gulf of Mexico. It would prove to be a massively important naval and mercantile port, which allowed the Chocos to control the commerce of the entire Yucatan Peninsula, including the highlands of El Petén in Guatemala. We also mentioned how Potonchan exacted tribute from eight smaller provinces, 
each province filled with smaller villages, towns, and hamlets that all contributed money, resources, and men to the great Choco capital. We get one of the best descriptions of the great city from the royal historian of Spain, Pedro Martir Angleria, a man we don't have time to discuss here, but is a wealth of knowledge concerning the history of the Spanish Empire during the 14th and 15th centuries. He described the city shortly before his death in 1526 as, quote, There exists a grand city existing along the edge of the river Tabasco, so grand and important that it cannot be calculated. It extended lapping the coast for 500,000 steps and has 25,000 houses interspersed with gardens that are richly fabricated with stone and lime in which the industry and art of the architects stands out admirably. End quote. We will discuss Potonchan a bit later when the Spanish managed to walk along its ancient streets, but the geographical location of the actual city has eluded archaeologists for centuries. The general area has been narrowed down to the jungles and swamps surrounding the current city of Frontera. However, the exact placement of the site where Juan de Grijalva would be welcomed and Hernán Cortés would welcome himself is still not certain. A number of smaller sites have been proposed, such as San Ramón, El Pájaro, and Allende, all sites we did not cover due to their small size and relatively low number of visible structures. What was discovered was a large number of ceramic pieces, and through the forensic examination of these ceramics, a clear picture is being formed. Not all ceramics are created equal, and the seemingly subtle differences in color, design, and sedimentary composition of the clay itself has left us an archaeological paper trail, or clay trail, with which we can utilize to track the development of cultural distinctions and markers. By utilizing this ceramic record, researchers have been able to identify these three sites as the most likely to have been the actual site of Potonchan itself or part of a vast network of communities that constituted the great Choco city. The constant shifting of the Grijalva River Delta has rendered this a even more challenging endeavor as the geography of the region is susceptible to considerable changes that alter the landscape in ways that make it hard to rely on the 500-year-old accounts of long-dead European explorers. Despite these archaeological challenges, the hunt continues for the famous city of Potonchan, which we will revisit later on in the episode. But it is now time to shift our attention to the new arrivals in the region. For while the Chocos didn't know it, by 1518, they had lived their last year in the post-classical, for with the arrival of Cortes in 1519, the post-classical period would officially come to a close, and the colonial would take its first tentative steps into the historical record. Now, before we get into all that fun talk of civilization crashing and colonizing, let's focus on the first fateful meetings between the Spanish and indigenous Maya living in the Yucatan. Before we get there, we need to jump back even further to the discovery of the Americas on the 12th of October, 1492, when Christopher Columbus, or Cristobal Colón in Spanish, sailed the ocean blue with the blessing or indifference, depending on who you ask, of the Spanish crown. Upon arriving, he promptly went on to discover, then claim in the name of the Spanish Empire, the island of Hispaniola, modern-day Haiti, 
at a small bay called Mole San Nicolas. After taking a good look around and noticing a considerable lack of modern weaponry, he proceeded to enslave or kill as many natives as he could get his grubby hands on. His son, Don Diego Colon, would take up the mantle of his late father and be installed as governor of Santo Domingo, which is the modern-day country of the Dominican Republic. He would also be given the status as Viceroy of the West Indies, with the Viceroy just being a fancy name for the administrative head of a large geographical region, such as the Caribbean Islands, which the Spanish thought was India, so they named it the West Indies. In 1511, Don Diego Colón would send his captain and right-hand man, Don Diego de Velázquez y Davila, to complete the conquest and pacification of the island of Cuba, as well as pacifying the native Taino that inconveniently inhabited it. This task Velázquez managed to complete in two months, and by January 1512, Velázquez had captured the Taino leader, Hatue, and began gifting his generals and captains with lands taken from the locals. Hatue himself was a very interesting figure, and upon his eventual capture, he was tied to a stake and given the choice between conversion or incineration. Hatue opted to face the fire, reportedly because he did not wish to see his hated captors in the Catholic afterlife when he died. Gotta hand it to the guy. He sure knew how to make an exit. The list of men Velázquez would hand lands to is a who's who of the various conquistadors who would soon conquer and own most of Latin America. We see obvious names such as Juan de Grijalva and Hernán Cortés, but also names such as Panfilio de Narvez, future governor of Jamaica and Florida, Francisco Hernández de Córdoba, discoverer of the Yucatán Peninsula, Pedro de Alvarado, one of the five Alvarado brothers who accompanied Cortés on his march through Mexico and would serve as governor of Guatemala, Francisco de Montejo, who conquered the Yucatán, Bernal Díaz del Castillo, who helped Cortés take Tenochtitlan from the Aztecs and also served as Guatemalan governor, Bartolomé de las Casas, who was actually a Dominican missionary but heavily involved in the subjugation of Chiapas, and Diego de Ordaz, who would make a famous expedition into Venezuela looking for the city of gold, El Dorado. And these are just some of the ones present during the conquest of Cuba. More would come from Spain, as word of the adventures and riches found in the New World swelled the imagination of ambitious and young Spanish nobles and commoners back in the homeland. All these men would make their start here, in Cuba, under the tutelage of Don Diego de Velázquez, who we will sometimes refer to as just Velázquez. I will do my best to avoid confusing you with all the similar names of these conquistadors, and thankfully we will only be dealing with one or two at a time, but I name drop them all here to give some weight to the men who are about to embark both into the heart of the unknown and the pages of the history books. You can also start to imagine what an island full of these ambitious and morally questionable men can start to feel like after a few months. Many of these men had moved to Cuba from the colony of Castilla del Oro, now modern-day Tierra Firme in present-day Panama, and its governor, Pedro Arrias de Avila, also known as Pedrarias. 
a cruel and unscrupulous man who had instilled in his followers a particular brand of indifference and treachery towards both the locals and each other. Among these men under Pedrarias was a soldier turned chronicler named Bernal Diaz del Castillo, from whom we get some of the best first-hand accounts of these early exploratory days. Within his accounts, he mentions how the men started to get restless in Panama, since most of the available land had already been taken, and, quote, there was nothing to conquer, and that everything was peaceful, that Vasco Núñez de Balboa, Pedraria's son-in-law, had conquered it all, end quote. Bernal Diaz goes on to mention how 110 Spaniards, including himself, who had all waited for around three years, finally requested leave to travel to the island of Cuba and try their fortunes there, a request which Pedrarias immediately granted, no doubt eager to see these increasingly disgruntled men become someone else's problem. Many of these men were given lands when arriving in Cuba, however there was a considerable shortage of natives to go around to perform the slavery bit of the arrangement. And so, many of these conquistadors, Bernal Diaz de Castillo among them, began pitching a new expedition to aggressively convince more natives to become free laborers, allowing the Spaniards who owned them to be elevated into hacendieros, or landed men with slaves to work their plantations or other exploitative industries. You know, the Spanish dream. Velázquez would soon realize, much like Pedrarias before him, that he could not expect his glory-hungry men to sit around idly for long, if he wanted to keep both his power and his life. And so he agreed to the proposed expedition under the condition that the expedition start with the islands of Guanajes, a set of islets that rest between Cuba and Honduras, but also expressed to the captain his actual intention of filling the boats with a cargo full of Indians to serve as slaves. Now, it is important to understand just how risky this all was on behalf of Velázquez, for while he was governor of Cuba, he still had a boss, namely the man who gave him the job in the first place, Don Diego Colón, son of Christopher Columbus. Technically, Velázquez did not have the titles or royal mandates to establish settlements. That could only be done by the viceroy. All he could do was engage in rescue operations until given further approval. And so Velázquez would claim all the missions he launched were done in order to rescue some nameless castaway that was never recovered, and hoped no one would look too hard at the books. Of these expeditions sent towards the Mexican mainland, we will discuss two in this episode and save the third for next time. But make no mistake, there were constantly ships leaving Caribbean and Central American ports in search of new lands to claim either legally or illegally. This distance between the homeland and the colonies, and the time it took for messages to be transferred between the two, would be a constant obstacle faced by the colonizers of the New World that led to all sorts of issues and shenanigans. They would constantly be waiting for orders from the Crown, only to receive ones they did not like, or orders that went against the realities of things on the ground. Perhaps this will all call for a supplemental episode exploring the very interesting and drama-filled life of Don Diego de Velázquez and other early New World governors and the challenges they faced. Velázquez, for his part, gives off some major mob boss vibes, and indeed his life will be filled with danger, plotting, and more than one close brush with death at the hands of an ambitious coup.
his initial support of, then later conflicts with, Hernán Cortés, both in the field and in the legal courts of Spain, are also highly interesting episodes in history, which we will cover when we get to the conquest of Mexico. Yes, the life of Don Diego Velázquez, warlord of Cuba and the Caribbean, will definitely require a revisit. In this episode, however, we will focus instead on the adventures of his subordinates, Hernández de Córdoba and Juan de Grijalva, from whom we get the name for the Emerald River that flows through the capital and waters the Chontalpa region. Grijalva's expedition comes a little later, so let's first start off with the ill-fated Córdoba expedition and how it set the stage for the later arrival of Grijalva in Tabasco. The expedition proposed by the discontented Spanish conquistadors who traveled from Panama, including chronicler Bernal Díaz del Castillo, would set out from the port of Havana on February 8, 1517. Two warships escorted by a brigantine, essentially a mini-warship, left port crewed by around 110 men and captained by Hernández de Córdoba, who Bernal says was given command due to his noble birth and wealth, being an Hidalgo, basically a title of nobility or gentry, which probably originated from the term hijo de algo, or son of something a title typically reserved for someone coming from status and means. They sailed along the coast of Cuba for 12 days, and on the 20th of February ventured out into the open seas, leaving the Cape of San Antonio, the westernmost tip of Cuba. Once out at sea, the men met their first obstacle, the weather. Two full days and nights of a terrible storm nearly ended the entire voyage right then and there, according to Bernal who would write about his journey some 50 years later from the safety of his dry and warm home in Spain. His ultimate work would be called The Conquest of New Spain and will continually be a source of information on the events that transpired during this and subsequent missions, albeit a slightly biased and at times foggy recollection of said events. Coming from the mind of a morally questionable soldier from Spain 50 years after the events he was relaying had occurred. So you know, Keep your grains of salt at hand. We know Bernal is not the most reliable narrator, giving the reasoning he provides for their initial voyage from Cuba. In his chronicle, he very clearly states that upon pitching the idea to Velázquez and receiving his condition of filling ships with slaves, Bernal claims he immediately denied this, writing, quote, We responded to him that what he said was not the command of God nor king, to make free men into slaves an answer which must have impressed the Cuban warlord so much that he agreed to help fund the voyage anyway, out of a deep respect for Bernal and his men's piety. Now Bernal might have hidden the truth about the actual aim of the mission in order to gain recognition for his and his fellow soldiers' actions in the New World by the Spanish crown and its citizenry, and it would have been quite a difficult sell if the expedition that discovered Mexico was originally one with slaving purposes. But make no mistake, this expedition absolutely had the trappings of a slaving expedition. The men were explicitly told by Velázquez not to return until they had filled the cargo holds with people. And we know he desperately needed more slaves to give to his increasingly restless men. How could any of them have foreseen that this particular voyage would become so historically significant and set off a whole new phase in the exploration of the Americas? 
Surely, the minds of Bernal and his fellow men were far from the royal family and average Spanish citizen when they embarked on February 8th. And so, despite having no compunction with the enslavement of indigenous men, women, and children, so long as they helped him become a hacendero, Bernal would try to paint over these darker intentions years later, when he began to put his memories down on paper and realized that he might be judged by the eyes of history. Velázquez would also send along a veedor, or overseer, a specific position within the conquistador ranks which reported directly back to the Spanish crown with administrative and fiscal reports, such as how much treasure was being gathered by the expeditions in order to allocate the proper fifth, known as the Quinto Real, or the Royal Fifth, a practice by which 20% of all treasure seized in the New World would be destined for the Spanish royal treasury. The inclusion of this overseer makes it pretty clear that the Spanish expected to find some new lands, and thus needed an overseer to declare the intentions of the explorers to the Indians according to the legal requisites of fair engagement. That's right, the Spanish had a rule on the books that they had to read a proclamation of intent to the natives long before attacking them, in order to legalize the acquisition of any property. A very tough ask when you don't speak the native language, and the person you're proclaiming to isn't very much interested in hearing you as they are in filling you with spears and arrows. This was all done in order to legalize the aggression in face of possible future investigations. But again, the lack of translation would render this practice untenable at best. However, Cortez was famously scrupulous with this formal requirement, always assuring he was adhering to the law even when he was blatantly breaking it a sign of the political sharpness and foresightedness Cortes possessed. This manipulation of perception is very reminiscent of the way Julius Caesar justified his invasion of Gaul to the Roman Senate back in the first century BCE, a similarity we will explore a bit more when we dive into the discussions of Cortes. These adherences to legal precedent would serve the Spanish conqueror greatly in the power struggles he would inevitably face with Velázquez over the question of who would become supreme leader of the newly established super-territory of Nueva España. Regardless of Bernal's apparent whitewashing of the expedition's original intentions, contemporary sources all support the quite obvious conclusion behind the mission and don't seem to be as evasive on the topic. A constable in Spanish-controlled Veracruz, writing back to Charles V in Spain, would claim the voyage was made to obtain services from them, that is, the natives. And Bartolomé de las Casas, a Spanish friar who also wrote on the discoveries made in the New World during his life, likewise confirms that the original intent was to kidnap and enslave Indians, but that this plan may have also been expanded to include exploration again noting the attachment of an overseer to the expedition. Back at sea, Huracan finally showed the Spanish pity, and after two days of violently unpleasant weather, they enjoyed several weeks of calm waters. They eventually spotted land on the 21st day of their journey and became the first Europeans to witness a large population center in Mesoamerica. Now, during this time, the Spanish had a funny habit of referring to anything developed or technologically advanced not made by Christian hands as Muslim, given the relatively recent end of the Reconquista, 
which had pitted the two religions against one another in a fight to the death over control of the Iberian Peninsula. Because of this, the Spanish on the Cordoba expedition named this city they saw as El Gran Cairo, or the Grand Cairo, due to the pyramids and other religious buildings they saw, which they labeled as mesquitas, Spanish for mosques. Here, one would not be blamed for labeling this moment as the discovery of the Yucatan and Mexico. However, that designation is not entirely accurate and comes with a big old asterisk. You see, in 1511, a boat from the fleet of Spanish explorer Diego de Niceos, leaving from Panama en route to Hispaniola, wrecked near the coast of the Yucatan. Two lucky survivors, Jerónimo de Aguilar and Gonzalo Guerrero, managed to make it onto the shore and had been living in Quintana Roo this entire time. These two sailors unwittingly became the technically first Europeans to see Mexico. However, the debate is still going on as to who should be credited with its discovery, hence the asterisk next to Hernández de Córdoba's initial voyage. Jerónimo and Gonzalo did arrive first, if only by accident. Yet despite this, most academics keep the credit with Hernández, who actually had a mandate and intention of exploration and discovery, given the inclusion of an overseer on his voyage. And so Hernández de Córdoba is considered the European to have discovered Mexico. A round of applause to Hernández for his contribution to history. The story of Gonzalo Guerrero and Jerónimo de Aguilar, however, is a fascinating tale on its own. I will quickly go over the Sparknotes version, but both these guys lived drastically different experiences during their time in Mexico, and both the priest and the warrior deserve at least a quick digression into their adventures. The first of our unknowing discoverers was a Francescan friar named Jerónimo de Aguilar, born in Equija, Spain in 1489. He would be sent to Panama to serve as a missionary and selected for a mission to Santo Domingo in 1511, the same one that would wreck and deposit him and 12 others onto the Mayan shores of Quintana Roo. The 12 survivors were discovered by the local Maya and most likely taken to the nearby site of Uyamil, although this is still hotly debated. They were taken to be sacrificed to the gods, however, and that part of the story is not so debated. Five of the survivors met their sacrificial fate. Four died of diseases before their time came, and one woman was overworked to death as a slave. That left Jerónimo and Gonzalo all alone, but together they planned a successful escape, and fortune, smiling on them, landed in the lap of another Mayan tribe set to inhabit the site of Zamanha, led by a man named Zamanzana, who hated the tribe they had just escaped from. This seemed like a lucky break, as rather than kill them, Zamanzana opted to just enslave them, but did begin teaching the two men the Mayan language. Here, the two men's lives take markedly different paths. Jerónimo, being a man of faith, rejected the natives' attempts to Mayanize him and constantly held on to his beliefs, refusing the offers of women made to him by the chief and even retained his Book of Hours, a kind of decorated prayer book that also helped structure time for the reader, tracking the days and years. When Hernán Cortés arrived at Cozumel, he heard stories of bearded men among the neighboring tribes, who he rightly suspected were fellow Spanish. 
he would send word for them and sent along a ransom payment for their release, basically a necklace of green beads that was highly prized among the native Maya. This message and the ransom eventually reached the tribe of Zamanzana, who accepted the payment and released the all-too-eager-to-return-to-his-people Aguilar, who was by this time suffering captivity all by himself. Aguilar would immediately set out for the nearby island, but when he arrived, he learned that he had just missed the boats by a day. So he jumped right back into his tiny canoe, and with his six native rowers, nearly died in the attempt trying to catch up to Cortez's Spanish fleet that had landed on the island of Tierra Firme off the coast of Quintana Roo. The eight years in captivity had not been kind to Aguilar, and by this point he looked every bit the part of a Mayan slave. So much so that when the Spanish friar and his six Mayan rowers finally approached the Spanish encampment, the Spanish initially met them with raised arms, unsure of who was approaching. The guards then announced to Cortez that seven natives had come to speak to the general, to which Cortez asked who among them was the Spaniard, to which the bedraggled man answered in perfect Spanish, Yo soy, or I am. He then produced his carefully guarded book of hours and proceeded to state the exact date in perfect Spanish. Finally, he was recognized as one of their own, and the Spanish hurried to clothe and feed this long-lost brother. The priest had made it home. He would go on to accompany Cortes on the entrada or conquest of Tenochtitlan, the Aztec capital, and after the conquest would settle down as a citizen of Mexico City and be given lands befitting his great service to the crown. He would die in 1536, and his home would become the site of the first printing press in Mexico. No doubt, one of the first topics discussed between the newly rescued Jerónimo de Aguilar and the Spanish general Cortés would be to inquire about the fate of his fellow survivors, if there were any left. Aguilar would solemnly describe his initial shipwreck and the tragedies that befell his fellows, but also describe the other man who survived the experience, Gonzalo Guerrero, the warrior. Gonzalo was born in Palos, Spain sometime near the close of the 15th century, and likely arrived in the New World sometime in the very early 16th century. Not much is known about his years before the shipwreck that changed his entire life. He too would be captured by the Mayans in 1511, and along with Aguilar escaped, only to be recaptured by Zamanzana. Unlike Aguilar, however, Gonzalo had no truck with the Spanish religion, and eagerly accepted the Mayan leader's gifts of women, status, and freedom. Guerrero means warrior in Spanish, and true to his namesake, Gonzalo began distinguishing himself as a strong warrior, so much so that by 1514 he was sent to the court of Nachan Khan, the Halak Uinik, or governor of Chetumal, the Mayan province found in southern Quintana Roo, which we mentioned is believed to have been founded by the Itza Maya who migrated there from Chichen Itza sometime around 900 CE, near the date of the Mayan collapse. Here, Guerrero is thought to have excelled as both a warrior and commander of men, and would actually serve under the Mayan forces sent to fight against both the Cordoba and Grijalva landings of 1517 and 1518, respectively. Guerrero did so well during his time in Chetumal, that he was given the hand of a Mayan woman named Zazil Ha, who some say was the daughter of Nachan Khan, 
the Chetumal leader. But whatever her status, their children are widely considered to be the first mestizo children born in the New World. When Cortes sent his offer to join in the expedition to the heart of the Aztec Empire, Gonzalo markedly refused the offer, claiming he had a duty to provide for his family. Cortes countered by giving the Mayan captain leave to bring his family with him, but again Gonzalo refused, this time claiming he had a duty to provide for his lord, as Gonzalo still considered himself a servant to the mighty indigenous leader that had released him from his chains. By this time, Gonzalo had drunk heavily from the pozol-flavored Kool-Aid and had fully converted to both Mayan polytheism and culture. He would continue to fight against the Spanish in the name of his adopted Mayan people and engage the Spanish during various incursions they launched against the Yucatec natives in Quintana Roo and Honduras. He was eventually reportedly killed by an arquebus shot in the battle with Pedro Alvarado in 1532 during the conquest of Honduras. He was said to have been around 66 years old when he died, face tattooed and ears pierced like the people he lived among for so long. Despite there being no first-hand accounts from Guerrero himself, and some archaeologists remaining skeptical over the man's actual existence, even going so far as to claim that Aguilar invented Guerrero for personal reasons, his unique story has still reverberated among the populations of indigenous peoples as a cultural hero and a man who rejected his own people and religion in favor of his convictions and a newly adopted family. This question of legitimacy also extends to Jerónimo de Aguilar, whose story of tragedy, adherence to faith in the face of captivity, and eventual rescue by his noble countrymen does seem a little too perfect to be true. Not only is his unshakable faith something to narrow our eyes at, but the fact that he was allowed to keep his religious text for eight years through captivity has me equally skeptical. I am not saying it's outside of the realm of possibility, just very convenient. The question would then be why would anyone make these accounts up? And I think the answer has more to do with the legality of Cortez's voyage than anything else. Remember, neither Velazquez nor Cortez held the authority to declare an expedition to conquer anything without explicit permission from the Viceroy. The only thing they could legally do was launch rescue operations. But who wants to wait for that stuffy old man all the way back in Spain to agree when the gold is just over the water, begging to be discovered? All of a sudden, oh look, it's Jerónimo de Aguilar and Gonzalo Guerrero, two lost Spaniards in desperate need of rescue. This gave Cortes all the legal cover he needed to confidently move forward with his expedition, claiming he was looking for more survivors. Fascinating though they may be, we must move on from the possibly invented adventures of the priest and the warrior, but both will still make some appearances in our future stories. Jumping back into our narrative, the Cordoba expedition had just labeled the newly discovered city as El Gran Cairo. But the land Hernandez found was markedly not Muslim and certainly not Cairo. Instead, it seems they landed near the modern-day Cabo Catoche, or Cape Catoche, on the northernmost point of the Yucatan Peninsula, approximately 240 kilometers or 150 miles east of Cuba. This cape lies in the municipality of Isla Mujeres and is about 53 kilometers or 33 miles north of Cancun. 
The International Hydrographic Organization has designated this as the official division point between the Gulf of Mexico to the west and the Caribbean Sea to the east. The naming of Cape Catoche, along with the entire Yucatan Peninsula for that matter, is another subject of academic debate we will cover in just a moment. The Spanish would approach the shores of Mexico on March 4, 1517, and were greeted by ten large canoes called pirogues. But no, the Maya did not float up to the Spanish on giant Polish dumplings. But rather, pirogues is a French word for any small boat, canoe, or dugout used primarily by the native peoples, with the Maya utilizing both oars and sails to navigate through the water. Communicating primarily by signs, the first interpreters, Julian and Melchior, were requisitioned on this voyage. The Indians, according to Bernal, were, quote, always with smiling faces and every appearance of friendliness, end quote. They told the Spanish to await the next day, when more pirogues would come to bring them to shore and meet their rulers. Indeed, the next day came and more pirogues arrived, bearing gifts of strings of green beads, providing Hernandez with one of the few peaceful contacts between Spanish and Indian he would experience. Gestures which even now were possibly being faked by the Mayans. From these contacts we have the birth of the toponyms for Yucatan and Catoche, whose origins are perhaps too hilarious to be true, but worth retelling anyway. The story goes that upon landing the pirogues and setting off on foot, the Mayans told the Spanish, Cones Catoche, Cones Catoche, which means come to our houses in Yucatec. So the Spanish named the settlement and cape where they landed, Catoche. Along the way, the Spaniards asked the Mayans for the name of the island they had just discovered, still thinking Mexico was just an island, to which the natives supposedly replied with the very confused Yucatan, meaning, I don't understand what you said. And so the Spanish named the whole peninsula Yucatan. Cue audience laugh track. Now, as stated, the validity of these etymological origins are still hotly debated, but that hasn't stopped countless trivia nights from keeping the Yucatan means I don't understand what you said question and answer and never looking back. The friar Diego de Landa, a particularly destructive friar who burned many indigenous texts and idols in the name of the Catholic Church, but is another of our primary sources who wrote extensively on the conquest of Mesoamerica, would confirm that Catoche derives from Cotoche, meaning our houses or our homeland. So at least that etymology somewhat checks out. Yucatan, however, is harder to verify, as Landa did not confirm its translation, and a conflicting account is given by Bernal Díaz del Castillo, in which another comedic misunderstanding over the word for bread resulted in the word for cassava in Spanish, yuca, being combined with the Mayan word for bread, tlati, which the Spanish mashed together to falsely deduce the name of the island as Yucatan. But this Bernal account is again contradicted by another important chronicler named Fray Toribio de Benavento, who was given the name Motolina by the natives and was one of the famous Twelve Apostles of Mexico, a group of religious figures who were instrumental in the pacification and conversion of the native population. These guys will get their own deep dive in another episode, 
But for now, Motolinia stands as the first narrator to publish the I don't understand what you said story, and this would be the official version of events adopted by the historians back in Spain. And so the story stuck. But its validity remains in question. In 16th century Yucatec, there is no clear cognate for Yucatan, although tan or tan is a common Mayan root for language or speech. Further connection may be seen with the Chontal word we are all too familiar with, Yokotan, which you'll recall means true speech in the Yokotano language. This anecdote is far too appealing to go away, however, and similar to the apocryphal etymology for the word kangaroo, coming from an Aboriginal Australian's expression for I don't understand the question, it seems these explanations are here to stay, regardless of whether they are true or not. However the land of Yucatan got its name, the Spanish were escorted onto its shores by the native Mayas aboard their pirogues on March 5, 1517, and everything still seemed to be going according to plan. But a few hairs might have begun creeping up on the backs of some of the men as they approached a shore full to the brim with natives. Despite these initial warning signs, the men landed armed only with, quote, 15 crossbows and 10 muskets, end quote according to Bernal. Everything seemed in order as the men started walking towards the city, which they had dubbed El Gran Cairo, but which modern archaeologists confidently propose might have been the Mayan city of Ekab, on the northernmost tip of the state of Quintana Roo. As the Spanish entered the city, the Mayan chief, or Caquique, as the Spanish referred to them, finally dropped the ruse and launched his ambush attacking with hundreds of indigenous warriors armed with spears, bucklers, slings, bows and arrows, and all wearing cotton armor. This initial attack surprised the Spanish, and two of their numbers died immediately in the initial assault. The story of the Cordoba expedition could have ended right then and there had it not been for the Spanish arms, which frightened the native warriors away, who had never encountered such a loud and terrible weapon that sounded much like thunder cracking in the sky, giving the Spanish the precious time and space they needed to re-embark their ships and hightail it the heck out of there. We know from our previous discussions on indigenous religion and mythology that Huracan was one of the most feared gods due to his control of both storms and the elements of thunder and lightning. With this understanding, we can imagine that guns and cannons could not have been easy weapons to fight against for the highly superstitious Mayans. Now from this Spanish account, it is easy to imagine how the treacherous Maya were plotting their ambush since the day before and eagerly going over how they were going to best kill and torture these strangers. With fake smiles and evil intentions, the hapless Spanish were treated poorly by the mean cacique and his warriors who cowardly attacked the men without provocation and were only held back by the weapons the Spanish bravely brought to defend themselves. Now, while all this may have been what actually happened, I'm still catching a faint whiff of bias, and I'm sure there is much more to the story that Bernal is likely omitting. Perhaps he simply forgot the details of the voyage after 50 years and could not recall exactly what went on during this second encounter with the citizens of Ekab. But I don't buy that, since he had a very clear recollection of the exact number of weapons the conquistadors brought with them for the landing. 15 crossbows and 10 muskets to be exact. 
The reasons for the Maya engaging in the treachery can be explained by the constant contact the native peoples had through their extensive trade networks. And these Maya must have undoubtedly heard about the strange new peoples sailing around in Caribbean waters, enslaving the native Taino and any other natives they found, executing their leaders. Perhaps this was just a carefully planned attack to catch the possible invaders off guard, so that might track. But let's not forget that this was not a diplomatic mission to find and establish trade relations with the locals and treat them as equals. No, this was a slaving operation, under the pretense of a rescue expedition, plain and simple. Given the gravity of the discovery and attention it would garner back in Spain, Bernal perhaps tried to dress down the undesirable aspects of their voyage. There is no denying, however, that the Spanish were there with one thing in mind, and rather than scare them off, the encounter at Cape Catoche would ultimately galvanize the efforts of the conquistadors once the expedition returned to Cuba with its fantastic story. Besides the obvious heightened state of alert this put the Spanish on, the Battle of Catoche had two important outcomes which would have fateful repercussions on future events. The first would be the conversion of the two native interpreters who we have already met. But it would not be until they boarded the ship that they were baptized and bestowed the names Julianillo and Melcorejo, also known as Juliano and Melcor. These two would be the first Mayan interpreters for the Spanish and would accompany both Grijalva and Cortes on their subsequent voyages to the new land. The second seismic event to come out of the Battle of El Gran Cairo was the discovery of gold on the Yucatan mainland. The expedition's chaplain, a man named Gonzalez, either out of bravery, greed, or just plain curiosity, had snuck into one of the strange pyramids and plundered some coins of gold and copper, along with a few idols and other trinkets, all while his companions were outside fighting for their lives. Had history played out differently, this battle could have convinced the expedition to turn back around and avoid the zone altogether, perhaps sparing Mexico from its fate even if only for a few fateful years. Alas, Chaplain Gonzalez and his good long look at the golden Mayan idols and treasures all but assured that the Spanish would not stop coming until they held the riches they so desired in their own greedy hands. And it is because of this event that I believe the Maya were wary of the Spanish but were never planning to betray them in such a treacherous and predictable manner. Instead, I believe some altercation or miscommunication must have occurred in Ekab between the two parties that resulted in the sudden breakout of violence. Or maybe everyone was on edge and both sides were just looking for any excuse to start blasting. We may never know for certain what this event was if any did occur. The fact that at least one Spanish explorer, Gonzalez, was poking his nose around and snatching coins from temples might be further indication that it was the Spanish who entered with ill intentions and ultimately betrayed the trust of the Maya. But of course, we have no current way of knowing for sure. And this initial violent encounter would set the mood for the rest of the voyage the Cordoba expedition was destined to endure. Considering the initial encouraging discoveries, the Spanish were hopeful but understandably put on high alert. The lead navigator of the mission, the highly experienced Anton de Alaminos, had sailed to the Americas on the second voyage of Christopher Columbus in 1493 CE, 
so he was a bit of a celebrity among the conquistadors. Alaminos would impose a slow pace, moving exclusively by day, as the weathered explorers still believed that the Yucatan Peninsula was an island. Now on land, there are many things that can kill you, such as the natives and the pointy end of their weapons. But out at sea, the dangers were much more subtle. There was always the threat of a storm, but the real foe the Cordoba expedition would face when they were not facing down hordes of native warriors was thirst. The Spanish apparently were not provisioned properly due to economic difficulties. As a result, they had not brought casks or jugs of water adequate enough to hold the precious liquid and sustain them on long journeys, such as the one they currently found themselves on. Now, they had brought water with them, but the casks they were held in kept leaking, were not covered, and therefore could not be kept fresh. And so the Spanish were forced to replenish their water sources by going ashore. To make matters worse, the region is depressingly devoid of freshwater rivers, and the Spanish were not yet aware of the hundreds of cenotes and aquifers the Maya had been utilizing for generations to solve the very problems the Europeans currently faced. This forced the Spanish to come ashore in search of fresh water, which they did 15 days after the Battle of Catoche, near a Mayan village either called Lazaro or ruled by a cacique the Spanish named Lazaro. This landing occurred on St. Lazarus's day, being the reason why the Spanish chose this name for the location. In actuality, the site is known as Campeche, the same as the state. We will obviously go over why this is the case in Campeche's state episode, but again, the weary Spanish were approached by the amiable Indians, who appeared to be peaceful, but the Spanish were obviously all feeling a little jumpy. All seemed to be going well, as the Indians led them to a well, which held fresh water and allowed them to fill their jugs and casks. Water retrieved, the Maya then invited the soldiers into their village, where they met their first priests. The priests must have seemed slightly frightening to the Spanish, wearing bright white tunics that stood out in the green and gray world of the jungles and temples that surrounded them, and their hair was soaked and caked in dried human blood. The priests perhaps saw in the Spanish something that angered them, for as soon as they appeared, the pleasantries were dropped, and the warriors were ordered to begin burning some dry reeds they had gathered at the center of the square. The Mayan holy men then made it clear, by whatever signs they could, that if the strange visitors were not gone by the time the fire went out, they would be attacked and killed. To which Hernandez and his men promptly picked up their water and got the heck out of Dodge, reboarding their ships and raising anchor. This was an abrupt end to their trip, but a successful end nonetheless, in both the find water and keep everyone alive missions, which is more than can be said for the next leg of the journey. From this point, they kept sailing west along the coast for six days in calm weather and four in the embrace of Huracan, one of which almost destroyed the entire fleet. Although they had managed to replenish their store of water, the poor condition of their casks and their leaky nature meant that pretty soon they were once again stuck with the same predicament. So again, they would have to brave the dangers of landing on shore and seeking out drinkable water on foot. They would drop anchor in the site that Bernal will often mistakenly label as Potonchan. However, the location of the landing does not agree with that, and it seems much more likely that he was referring to Champoton, another city located along the Campechan coast and along the Champoton River, north of La Laguna de Terminos.
Their land search proved fruitful, and the Spanish managed to once again replenish their water stores. However, their location had been made, and the men would find themselves surrounded by a large host of Indian warriors as darkness began to fall. The two sides would spend the night staring one another down. The Spanish, although understandably worried given their previous two experiences, nonetheless readied themselves to face the enemy head on. They had been surprised once, fled once, and this time they had decided they were going to stand and fight. Carefully observing them from the other side stood the Mayan leader, Moch Cojuo, who made up his mind to remove these outsiders from his land, and in the morning of the following day, he ordered a full attack on the small force of bearded strangers. Outnumbered 200 to 1, Bernal describes the events of the battle best in his chronicles. Quote, as soon as it was daylight, we could see, going along the coast, many more Indian warriors with their banners raised and with feathered crests and drums, and they joined those warriors who had assembled the night before. When their squadrons were formed up, they surrounded us on all sides and poured in such showers of arrows and darts and stones thrown from their slings that over 80 of us soldiers were wounded, and they attacked us hand to hand some with lances, and others shooting arrows, and others with two-handed knife-edged swords, and they brought us to a bad pass. We gave them a good return of thrusts and cuts, and the guns and crossbows never ceased their work, some being loaded while the others were fired. At least feeling the effects of our sword play, they drew back a little, but it was not far, and only enabled them to shoot their stones and darts at us with greater safety to themselves. While the battle was raging, the Indians called to one another in their language, Al Kalachuni, Al Kalachuni, which means, let us attack the captain and kill him. And ten times they wounded him with their arrows, and me they struck thrice, one arrow wounding me dangerously in the left side, piercing through the ribs. All the other soldiers were wounded by spear thrusts, and two of them were carried off alive, one named Alonso Boto, and the other an old Portuguese man. End quote. As these two very unlucky men were being carried off, the Spanish would have noticed even more warriors pouring out of the town, bringing with them fresh men, supplies, and arrows. Meanwhile, the Spanish were in rough shape and already counted 50 among their number dead, and nearly all of them were competing for the who can get more arrows stuck in them high score. They made the only decision they could and ran towards the ship under a cloud of arrows, stones, and spears hurled at them from their attackers. The Spanish tried to get away so quickly they nearly sank their own rowboats and were harried all the way to the bigger ships by arrows and even a few Maya swimming up to the boats with spears and stabbing from the water, tactics which should make any Navy SEAL proud. All in all, the Spanish had managed to accomplish the water mission again but it had come at the cost of the lives of over half the crew, so a slight blemish on the Keep Everyone Alive mission. It is estimated that of the Spanish explorers who left Havana with Hernández de Córdoba on February 8th, some 57 had died at the battle. Five died days later from their injuries. Two had been carried off, and only one, a sentry named Berrio, had miraculously left the battle unscathed. All the other men had either been injured, wounded, or killed in one way or another. The battle went so badly for the Spanish, they forever marked this site on all royal maps as La Costa de la Mala Pelea, or the Coast of the Disastrous Battle, 
or Coast of the Bad Battle, if you want to be less dramatic. Things had gone much better for Moch Cohuo and his Champoton warriors. Cohuo would also be the name of the people who lived in this area, likely bestowed thanks to this victory by their leader, Moch. To this day, the people of Campeche, especially those that live closest to the coast of the Bad Battle, remember this event with great pride. In the history of Spanish versus natives, these early victories would be some of the few that were won by the side of the natives, and so are celebrated among the indigenous communities. These would be some of the last battles won in favor of the Maya, although at the time they didn't know it. So for the moment, they fell back into their cities and towns to celebrate their smashing victory, tragically unaware that their years of self-governance were already numbered. The Spanish, meanwhile, argued amongst themselves as to what to do next. They had lost over half their number and were still dangerously low on supplies. Their captain lay dying from hugging too many arrows, and they would eventually need to find water again, and likely soon. They had lost so many men, in fact, that they were no longer able to pilot their three ships, so they split up the materials and crew amongst the remaining two and burned the third ship on the high seas. Safe to say, things were not looking great for the conquistadors. They decided to turn north at the prompting of head navigator Anton de Alaminos, who suggested they land in Florida, a land which, in 1513, Alaminos had visited with Ponce de Leon, the official first explorer of Florida and future governor of Puerto Rico. Upon landing, Alaminos would lead an expedition of 20 of the least banged-up men left alive to find water and successfully manage to locate some, but not before they themselves were discovered and set upon by the local natives, likely a force from the nearby Calusua chiefdom, bitter rivals and eventual killers of the Floridian discoverer Ponce de Leon. Unable to secure all the fresh water they needed, they also somewhat ironically lost Berrio in the melee that ensued. Berrio, who was the only uninjured survivor from the coast of the bad battle, who had survived that terrible defeat, it seemed, only to come to Florida, be captured and carried off by the local native forces, no doubt left to suffer a terribly painful fate. The rest of the party would make it back to the ships with the water, but not before one soldier was apparently so thirsty, he jumped from the warship onto the rowboat holding the casks, then proceeded to drink so much that he swelled up and died a few days later. Despite all the hardships and still dealing with the leaky hull, low rations, and some mutinous soldiers who refused to work the water pumps, the beat-up Cordoba expedition finally limped into Havana and made port sometime between the 8th and 10th of April 1517, bedraggled, defeated, and non-richer, but alive and full of fantastic stories. The sorry state of the expedition drew the ire of Velázquez back in Cuba, However, Hernández did not have to live with the disappointment for long, as he opted to die of his injuries a few days after returning to the conquistador home base, rather than live with the disappointment of his failed excursion. He would go on to be credited with the discovery of Mexico, and despite having only stopped at three sites, his voyage would represent a new phase in the conquest of the Americas, specifically sparking the conquest of Mexico in just one short, disastrous trip. As I stated, after the Battle of Catoche, the discovery of gold in one of the temples of the incorrectly labeled Gran Cairo would all but guarantee that the Spanish were going to keep coming 
and indeed they would. However, the second expedition they decided to send out was markedly different from the first, and the aims of its captain at least lined up more with an exploratory and diplomatic mission rather than one strictly of slave gathering. And that captain was Don Diego de Velázquez's nephew, Juan de Grijalva y Cuellar. Nevertheless, of the 80 to 100 men who embarked on the nearly two-month-long expedition, they had lost 57 to battle, three had been captured, four more died of their injuries upon returning to Cuba, including the captain, and one man had drank himself to death. To show for all their troubles, the expedition had come back with two translators, a handful of gold copper coins and green beads, a variety of idols and other trinkets found within the temple, casks of dirty water, and a collection of amazing stories. The soldiers had put all their resources into the voyage and had come back with absolutely nothing to show for it. Diego Velázquez, however, would take whatever recovered items were brought back and right back to Spain, taking all the credit for the voyage and its discoveries. The gold idols were so well-crafted and different from anything the Europeans had ever seen that they believed they belonged to the Gentiles or Jews whom the Roman emperors Titus and Vespasian had turned out of Jerusalem and sent to sea. These might represent the earliest moments where the idea of a transcontinental people coming to the Americas in order to establish the native cultures, much like Votan from the previous episode, started to materialize. The discovery of the idols would also grip the imaginations of the intellectuals who resided on the Cuban island, one of those being Fray Bartolomé de las Casas, who would one day become Bishop of Chiapas, and likely carried over this idea of the native sites being developed by some earlier outside influence, an idea which 150 years later might have likewise influenced another Bishop of Chiapas to pick up and champion as a basis for the cultural origins of his congregation. Meanwhile, Bernal Díaz del Castillo, our dear narrator, had been requested in Trinidad by Governor Velázquez and so proceeded to purchase a canoe and a couple rowers to take him via river to the city where he was scheduled to meet with the governor. However, Huracán had another surprise in store for him and his canoe was shattered along the banks of the river in a terrible gale. Having initially taken off their clothes to reduce the drag on the boat, the men, now cold, wet, and naked, had to trek for two days through the jungle and rocky ground, which cut them all along their bodies. Finally, they arrived at a village called Yaguarama, which belonged to a fellow chronicler, Fray Bartolomé de las Casas, who we just spoke about. And the travelers were clothed, fed, and sent along their way to Trinidad, which they finally arrived the following day. Upon arrival, Bernal was received by Governor Velázquez, who was already planning the logistics of another voyage, having by now received the interpreters and plundered idols, which no doubt had set his imagination ablaze. Velázquez had apparently already asked the natives if they had gold mines in their lands, to which the Mayans had replied yes. However, this must have been a misunderstanding, as there are few gold mines in Yucatán, and instead, they were likely referring to the mines in North America, such as the ones in the Appalachian Mountains being mined by the Potones. Bernal tells of an amusing exchange between the two men, quote, When I went to pay my respects to him, that is Velázquez, for we were kinsmen, he joked with me, and going from one subject to another, 
asked me if I was well enough to return to Yucatan, and I laughed, asking him who gave him the name for Yucatan, for in that country it was not so called. And he replied, The Indians you brought back with you call it so. So I told him, You had better call it the land where half the soldiers who went there were killed and all those who escaped death were wounded. End quote. As the laugh track plays out, I must admit this line is where Bernal really starts to grow on me and made me reflect on my own prejudiced view of the conquistadors who absolutely did terrible things, but were also human and have their own view and goals, meaning I cannot label them as all just evil men with evil intentions and call that a motivation. We here at the Histories of Mexico don't view life as black and white, so I chose to include this small piece of history as a moment where the humanity of some of the Spanish explorers shone through, despite all the pain and suffering they would also cause. But I got off track a bit there with my philosophical musings, a byproduct of my major. So let's get back to the narratives as Diego Velázquez was preparing to send his nephew, Juan de Grijalva, on a second expedition to the perceived island of Yucatán. So let's talk about young Juan and how he came to be the man selected for this all-important second voyage to Mexico. Born in 1940 in the Spanish city of Cuellar, which at the time was under the Kingdom of Castile, little is known about Juan's early childhood. But as a young boy, he gravitated towards the ships, leaving Spain for the riches and adventures of the New World. When he was old enough to enlist, he found himself attached to Panfilio de Narvez, future governor of Jamaica and Florida, who sailed to Cuba. Who sailed to Cuba, and in 1511, we see him participating with his uncle Diego Velázquez in the conquest, exploration, and colonization of the island. Grijalva would be given land and a number of natives to work by his powerful uncle, and he was still operating as a hacendiero when Hernández de Córdoba returned from his fatal expedition. The discovery of gold and copper had convinced both Grijalva and his uncle Velázquez that another expedition should be sent. This time, they decided to properly provision and prepare the expedition, so four ships were acquired, the two that had survived the Córdoba expedition undergoing repairs, and two more which Velázquez funded and built with his own money. With the stories of the first expedition flying across the island, the Spaniards who still had not received land or slaves greedily flocked to the port city of Santiago de Cuba, where the fleet was being assembled. Ignoring the number of fatalities and focusing only on how good the gold would feel when rubbed between their own fingers. All in all, some 240 men would take their shot at glory and fortune with this second expedition. Juan de Grijalva was named the general captain and led the tiny fleet from the flagship called the San Sebastián. Meanwhile, command of the remaining ships would go to three other hidalgos or noblemen, those being Alonso de Avila, Francisco de Montejo, and Pedro de Alvarado. Alonso de Avila will go on to support Cortés on the Aztec campaigns, but die before he was given any great honors or governorships. Francisco de Montejo would conquer the Yucatán and serve as governor of Honduras. And Pedro de Alvarado conquered Guatemala, served in Honduras, and became commander of the Order of Santiago, a prestigious religious and military order founded in Spain sometime in the 12th century. From their titles and accomplishments, you can imagine these were pure-blooded conquistadors, 
which was a stark difference to their commander on the expedition, Juan de Grijalva. These strong-willed noblemen did not like being told what to do, and the strength of their personalities would inevitably clash with that of the level-headed and perhaps even pacifist Grijalva. At the time, all would remain well within the conquistador ranks, but it would not be long before ambitions got too big to occupy the same spaces, and factions would begin to emerge around strong personalities such as Velázquez and Cortés, the two most glaring examples of this future cult of personality war that would break out in the newly conquered lands of the New World. This war was not always one fought with the sword and cannon, but more often with the pen and ink, through whispers of coups and mutinies. The support of these various local hidalgos running around, claiming lands for themselves and leading battalions of men, would carry heavy weight back in Spain in regards to the official decisions that were coming back from the royal court concerning the administration of the newly won lands. But all this is for another time, for right now, everyone was on the same side. The preparations this time would take over a year, but eventually, on April the 8th, 1518, the fleet was ready to leave the port of Matanzas, sailing along the Cuban coast and into Mexican waters. Their first discovery would be the sighting of the island of Cozumel on the 3rd of May, which they named Santa Cruz de Puerta Latina. Cozumel was a Mayan-held island which had its own native populations and cities that traded extensively with the mainland. We will revisit Cozumel in the Quintana Roo episodes, but this is the first mention of it in European records. Experienced navigator Anton Alaminos had once again been selected for the expedition, and he still believed the Yucatan to be an island, so he named the peninsula Isla Rica, a name which has obviously not stuck. They proceeded south for about 50 miles, where it is believed they witnessed a town known as Tulum, at that point called Zama reaching a point they called Bay of Ascension, but this was as far south as they would go, and opted to turn north to round the Cape of Catoche and began sailing west along the coast, recreating somewhat the route taken by the previous Cordoba expedition. Eventually the Spanish arrived at the coast of the bad battle that went so poorly for the Spanish at the hands of Halak Uinik Moch Cojuo. The Spanish, having learned their lesson from the few survivors of the Córdoba expedition, Bernal Díaz del Castillo among them, would board their landing boats armed to the teeth and spoiling for a fight. The Campechan Mayans, for their part, known as the Cojuo, likely due to the gravity of their leader Moch, had been tracking the Spanish from the coast ever since they entered Cojuo waters, and they too had come out in a massive force armed with spears, bows, slings, and the Macanas, the large pieces of wood with chipped obsidian points running along each side, making a deadly, two-handed, double-edged Mayan sword. As the Spanish approached the shore, firing their cannons from the boats, they were met with a hail of arrows, spears, and stones from the firing line of Cahua warriors lining the beach. Reaching the shores, the battle would turn into hand-to-hand -hand sword clashes, but this time the thunderous roar of the guns would be far too much for the Cahua, who retreated into the jungle as some 200 of their numbers started falling, having inflicted significantly less casualties on the Europeans this time than on their previous encounter. All in all, the Spanish lost seven men, 60 had been wounded, 
and the captain Juan de Grijalva had received three arrow wounds and two broken teeth for his efforts. Bernal tells of how most of these injuries came from wading through the swamps and disturbing some of the locusts or grasshoppers that were peacefully minding their own business. Quote, I remember this fight took place in some fields where there were many locusts, and while we were fighting they jumped up and came flying in our faces. And as the Indian archers were pouring a hailstorm of arrows on us, we sometimes mistook the arrows for locusts and did not shield ourselves from them, and so got wounded. At other times we thought they were arrows coming towards us when they were only flying locusts, and it greatly hampered our fighting. End quote. In spite of the efforts of both men and land to hinder the invaders, the Spanish would manage to push the Cahuo off their shore, and the men entered the nearest city they reached, likely Champoton to rest, tend to their wounds, and bury their dead. They sent a few of the Indians they had just captured with green beads signifying peace, hopefully to recall the chiefs to the city and strike a deal with them. Grijalva, it seemed, genuinely wanted to establish relations with the natives. However, the messengers they sent would never return, and the Cojuo would remain hidden, despite searching for them in the surrounding jungles and swamps for several days. The Spanish eventually gave up, returned to their ships, and continued west along the coast. The Cahuo will also remain hidden from our narrative until we return to the swamps of Campeche during that state's run of episodes to properly speak about the obscure yet fascinating Mayan ethnicity known as the Cahuo. Continuing west, the explorers discovered what they thought was a fast-moving river, which turned out to be a mouth of the Laguna de Terminos, which they labeled as La Boca de Terminos, or the Mouth of Termination. We also get the reasoning behind the name of the lagoon from this historical episode, for if you recall, the head navigator, one Anton Alaminos, was under the impression that the Yucatan they had been navigating around was actually an island, and here he confidently and incorrectly deduced that this must be where the island ended, or terminated, and so, a more proper description would be the mouth of the point of the island's termination. A valiant topographical effort by Alaminos, even if it was ultimately incorrect. There is some debate on where exactly this discovery took place, but it really comes down to two modern ports as the likeliest candidates. Either the Puerto Escondido, the hidden port, or the more probable Puerto Real, the royal port. What is not debated is that the Spanish did not approach the main entrance to the lake, known as Puerto Principal, the principal port, since they would have undoubtedly been seen by the city of Chicalango, which was heavily populated and active during this time. The Spanish, for their part, would drop anchor and explore the land, but quickly came to the conclusion that it was mostly abandoned and the area utilized primarily as a supply point for hunters and merchants passing by to trade their goods. The Spanish did just that, resupplying on deer and rabbits which they found plentiful in the area, and reboarded their ships, setting off into the next leg of their fateful journey. Now, I'm going to pause here a moment to note how all the events we have experienced thus far have been occurring outside of Tabasco, so I have been cheating a bit on our rule of sticking to events occurring in one particular state at a time, a rule made in order to avoid the show ballooning into a non-stop parade of digressions, and I already feel as though I do enough of that as is. Most of the events we have described up to this point have occurred either in Cuba, Quintana Roo, or the state of Campeche, north of the Laguna de Terminos, 
that large lagoon slash lake that is a helpful marker delimiting the approximate eastern border Tabasco shares with Campeche. Well, now we are finally approaching the events that took place within Tabasco proper, and it would begin with the discovery of the Rio Tabasco, which the explorers renamed Rio Grijalva in honor of the captain who discovered it. It was now the 8th of June, and after two months at sea, the Spanish had discovered the island of Cozumel, secured some solid payback on Moch Cojuo and Champoton, plundered a few small altars in Campeche, and discovered either the end of the island of Yucatan or just another lake. But otherwise, were significantly light in the gold, plunder, and established settlements department. These were results the young captain's ruthless uncle had explicitly outlined for the mission when back in Cuba. No doubt the disapproving glower from his uncle pushed Grijalva to cautiously enter the Grijalva River aboard the two warships that were able to navigate its shallower waters, leaving the other two bobbing in the gulf awaiting the return of the land expedition. The Spanish, we now know, had arrived near the Chontal capital of Potonchan and were likely wondering what kind of reception they would receive this time, thoughts which started running when they began noting the number of warriors that were lining the shores as they carefully sailed down the newly christened Rio Grijalva. Eventually, they were approached by a fleet of 50 canoes full of warriors clad in their cotton armor and carrying their deadly flint and obsidian weapons. As the Indians approached, some of the jumpier officers and their men almost began shooting. Yet, once again, it seems Juan de Grijalva had actually gone on this voyage to establish diplomatic relations, and so he instead ordered the translators, Julianillo and Melcorejo, to hail the approaching party and convey to them that they had nothing to fear, that they wished to talk and trade, and had things to tell them which would make them glad that the Spanish had arrived. Successfully avoiding another mass confrontation, the Chocos approached in four boats carrying about 30 warriors. The Spanish would give them strings of green and blue cut beads, as well as small mirrors. Upon seeing the gifts, the Indians relaxed a bit, but unrelaxed upon hearing what the Spanish captain was offering. In an almost comical way, the Spanish opened up with a description of their king, stating how strong he was and how many great lords and chiefs already acknowledged him as their lord and it would be in the Choco's best interest to do so as well. In the same breath, they asked that in return for the beads, they might bring over some food for the hungry men. Two of the Chontal party addressed the foreign delegation. Bernal claims it was a chief, most likely a captain among the Chocos, accompanied by what Bernal refers to as a papa, or a pope, likely one of the Choco holy men, similar to Apacaltan, who would have also been present at any official meetings between a foreign power and his own lord of Comalcalco. As this type of religious leader was known as a papa back in Spain, it would be the only point of reference Bernal Diaz had for this role in Mayan society, hence his designation. The two native men agreed to the trade of beads for food, as requested. On the second request of providing a new chief, however, well, they already had a pretty swell chief, thank you very much. And they warned the Spanish captain that it would be wiser to make peace rather than provoke war like they had done in Champoton. They went on claiming to know all about those battles and their clash with the Cojuos, with whom the Chontal would have had extensive dealings given their mercantile nature. The Choco delegation announced that they were not as weak as their neighbors, as they had come out in a much greater force, composed of more than three huicuipiles, which, according to the sources, were units made up of around 8,000 men, 
which would bring their count up to 24,000 assembled native warriors. The Chocos made references that they knew about these events that had taken place in Champoton where the Spanish had killed some 200 cojuos. And while the Chocos had no intention of fighting the Spanish, they did warn them that they were stronger than those they fought at Champoton and should consider themselves lucky the assembled Choco leaders had decided to wait for word from the delegation before choosing between peaceful negotiations or all-out violence. Grijalva, in his customary affectionate manner, then embraced the Indians as a sign of peace and gave them more strings of bead, with instructions to bring back an answer. He also warned that he did not wish to anger them, but if they did not return, he would have to force his way into town. Messages, gifts, and warnings exchanged. The two parties parted ways. The Chocos no doubt left to inform the Coes about the events, and the Spanish returned to their brothers-in-arms, awaiting on their warships anchored in the Gulf. The following morning, June the 9th, 1518, would dawn as any other, but would end up becoming a truly special and unique day. The Chocos set things off by keeping their word and approaching the warships floating in the Gulf with various boats and pirogues filled with gifts and food. It is here that the Bernal account becomes considerably lacking in details, and the esteemed chronicler merely rattles off the gifts they receive fruits, tortillas, meats, and more beads, and then conveys the suggestion of the Chontal to seek more gold in Colua, Colua, and Mexico, Mexico, likely referring to the great city of Cholula in Mexica lands currently held by the Aztecs. This might also be the first mention of the mighty Aztec empire that lay in the central Mexican valley to the west that the European explorers had ever encountered. The Spanish would then pack up their gifts, bid goodbye to the Chocos, and continue on their way, head navigator Anton Alaminos eager to leave a position that had left them exposed to strong northerly gales, which would have ground the ships, and Grijalva aching to seek out these lands of Colua and the rich empire he had just heard about, an empire and a people he was certain were going to love meeting him, his Spanish religion, and his mighty king. Dr. Diogenes Lopez Reyes, however, goes into much more detail concerning the meeting between these two most important figures of Juan de Grijalva and Tabs Kub, the Choco leader at the time. Writing over 400 years later, Dr. Reyes would most likely get his detailed account from another chronicler accompanying Juan de Grijalva on his famous expedition, a man named Juan Diaz, a chaplain who would also accompany Hernán Cortés on his conquest of the Aztec Empire. He would hold the little-known title of the first Catholic priest to give a mass on Mexican soil, as he would lead the Spanish through the religious ceremony upon safely landing on the Isla de Cozumel, and his account would be the first draft of a document expediently called Itinerario de la Armada del Rey Católico a la Isla de Yucatán en la India, en el año de 1518, en el que fue por comandante y capitán general Juan de Grijalva a mouthful of a name that is translated to Itinerary of the Armada sent by the Catholic King to the island of Yucatan in India in the year 1518, captained and commanded by General Juan de Grijalva. But we will from here on out refer to this as the much more manageable Itinerary of the Armada. 
No doubt Juan Diaz would have titled the subject of his emails with the entire message had he lived during modern times. But let this overly informative title be an indication of the amount of detail he went into with his accounts. So while the title may have been an eyesore to look at and read, it is beneficial to us as such a thoroughly detailed man was writing during such a sparsely documented time period. His writing is very dense, however, and Dr. Reyes manages to add a poetic flair to his writing, so we will be going off the Reyes account for this historical meeting. So, according to Dr. Diogenes, writing from the account of Chaplain Juan Diaz, we pick up where the Chocos arrived bearing the gifts of fruits, tortillas, fish, fowl, turtles, colorful woven mats, fine gold necklaces and bracelets, and beautiful heron and quetzal feathers. From further up the river could be seen a huge procession of boats and canoes, which eventually began to part and make way for a massive royal barge, adorned along the sides with gold platings and covered all around in finely embroidered mats and mantles. Slowly and solemnly advancing through the waters was the supreme Ko, seated on a gold-plated throne and surrounded by his fiercest warriors carrying their assortment of deadly Mayan weaponry, a man named Tabs Kub. His barge approached the tiny fleet and its flagship, the San Sebastian. Meanwhile, the smaller Choco canoes and piroguas surrounded the remaining ships and choked the mouth of the river with their number. As the supreme puma rose from his magnificent seat, musicians along the shores began playing their drums, conch shells, and flutes, playing soft and mournful chords. The cacique would stand at the edge of his royal barge and for a brief moment, indecision flashing through his mind, the suspicion of these strange bearded men peeking through the folds of his cunning mind. But a moment later, the doubt passed, and something compelled the Chonta leader to trust in the words of these Europeans. No doubt he saw in Grijalva a faithful and well-intentioned man worthy of trust, and he no longer hesitated, choosing to believe in the chivalry exuding from the Spanish captain. Thus, Tabs Koub, supreme co of the Choco people, descended into the interior of the strange ship, and the Chontal tribesmen arranged outside held their collective breaths. Everything aboard the ship had been arranged for the arrival of the Taba Co. Grijalva had dressed luxuriously in a crimson velvet robe and matching cap, with a gold chain adorning his neck, surrounded by his officers all dressed to the nines. As Tabs Koob walked across the deck of the ship, the Spanish offered their own brand of royal tribute by playing a military march on their trumpets and drums to the visible satisfaction of the Chontal Cacique. Grijalva then stepped forward and affectionately embraced the chief like a brother, welcoming him to his ship, and the two sat down, agreeing to treat on terms of friendship and peace, all via the translations of Julian and Melkor. The Choco chief is described by the Spanish who regarded him as tall, slender, well-proportioned, and his appearance imposing. A fine mantle embroidered with gold threads covered his body. Gold bangles encircled his strong, bare arms. He wore a rich gold diadem encrusted in stones that shimmered in the Tabascan sun, and a plume of fine feathers crowned his royal head. His speech was slow, serious, and methodical. His pupils hinted at an audacious, courageous, and influential man. Tabs Koub, too, was flanked by his officers and priests, 
all dressed in their finest outfits and adornments, denoting their complex hierarchy. Some sported beards, while others wore rich mantles, and others still wore brilliantly feathered penachos. They also wore the skins of various animals found in the jungles, including pumas, jaguars, tapirs, and caimans, and clutched at their bucklers, bows, spiked maces, heavy clubs, and the fearsome double-sided obsidian swords called macanas. The native monarch then placed his hands on his shoulders, a sign of friendship to Grijalva, and motioned that two members of his royal retinue to approach. One attendant took off the cacique's cloak, while the other brought a basket covered in green leaves, from which he produced a chain of fresh roses native to the land, called suchil, along with a bouquet of flowers that he then proceeded to light on fire. Captain Grijalva had the flower chain placed on his neck, while the burning bouquet was placed in his hand. As this was done, other attendants had spread out two mats on the deck of the ship and had begun placing an assortment of gifts. On one mat they placed richly sculpted gold pieces, polished stones, turquoise, jade, and emerald masks, exotic bird feathers of fantastic colors, and exquisitely embroidered cotton blankets. On the second they placed fruits, cocoa beans, tortillas, tobacco, chocolate, and various cuts of meat. Grijalva accepted these gifts with visible satisfaction and proceeded to introduce the king and his generals to his own Spanish officers, pilots, lieutenants, chaplains, and other prominent members of the crew. The cacique embraced them all, showing particular interest to Pedro de Alvarado for sporting a full blonde head of hair. The banners and flags of each party were shown off to the other and flown together in a surreal display of cordial and friendly rivalry. The tour of the ship continued as Grijalva led the indigenous leader by the arm into the quarters where Tabs Kub admired the pieces of artillery, the arquebuses, basically old-timey shotguns, the shrapnel, and the swords, which greatly called the tabaco's attention, likely recognizing the lethality and superiority of these metal European weapons. Finally, the two men sat down to eat but we are left wanting as to details on what the poor and already questionably provisioned Spanish served their esteemed guests. Whatever their meal, the two sides ate together and were soon put at ease with one another. The Spanish wine was broken out and generously spread among the new friends, and no discord appeared to break out. All the men ate like long-lost friends with Melkor and Juliano attempting to keep up with translating the very spirited conversations. As the dinner wound down, the supreme puma took out from a palm wooden box lined with carved deer leather several pieces of armor made, some from solid gold and others of wood covered with gold leaf, which he began placing on Grijalva with his own hands. There the Spanish captain stood, covered in glistening gold armor, airy white feathers, brilliant anklets, brooches, and overlapping earrings adorning his person. Grijalva, for his part, reciprocated the courtesy by dressing the Choco Monarch in a white shirt, green velvet doublet, shiny leather shoes with pink trim, a beautiful black velvet cap, silk sash draped across his chest, and a heavy silver chain around his neck. The Ko appeared pleased with his new clothing, and he displayed it with great pleasure to his onlooking subjects. And let's just pause for a second to really take in this scene. In less than a year, the Spanish and Chontal would be at each other's throats, 
with Cortes ultimately forcing the mighty indigenous leader to kneel before him and the Spanish Empire. Yet at this time and moment, everything was joyous, cordial, and downright friendly. I mean, here we have the strongest Choco leader, at the command of thousands, dressing the nephew of a Caribbean warlord hell-bent on owning everything in sight. And Grijalva, for his part, was a representative of the Spanish crown, addressing the native chief as if he were another European head of state, on equal footing with his own king. Dr. Diogenes puts it best when he wrote, quote, The adventurer had triumphed. The haughty and bellicose puma allowed itself to be caressed by the mighty lion of Castile. End quote. The puma, obviously, is Tab's kub, while the lion symbolically refers to Grijalva, and his amicable position and gentler nature does appear to be the main reason these negotiations for peace went so uncharacteristically peaceful. I find it hard to believe there would be any hugging, affectionate or otherwise, had someone like Diego de Velázquez or Pedro de Álvarez been in command, and Pedro himself was in fact and Pedro himself was in fact present on this journey, no doubt disapprovingly observing Grijalva as he was playing dress-up with the Choco leader on the deck of the warship. I dwell on this point a bit because it makes me wonder what might have been had other men been in charge when the discovery of Mexico turned into the colonization of Mexico. The sicknesses and diseases they brought with them would have still taken their toll, but I imagine countless lives might have been spared unnecessary pain and suffering had the Europeans adopted the Grijalva approach to diplomacy, you know, actually trying it. But it will remain to be seen how much actual choice these later conquistadors had. Maybe there truly was no way to avoid violence as the situation had occurred in Champoton. There Grijalva had no choice but to attack the already violent Indians. But. As we have already said, life is not black and white, so we will keep an open mind and critical eye on these encounters between American and European representatives or leaders and see if there was indeed a breed of man who gravitated to these positions of powers that resulted in violence and suffering for the locals, or if the circumstances they faced gave them no choice but to spill blood. But with that happy thought out of the way, let's get back to the good times being had aboard the San Sebastián. As Tab's Koob's inspection of the ship ended, Grijalva then delivered to his esteemed guest a box containing a pair of polished scissors, a set of well-crafted knives, fine fabrics, and three golden medallions bearing the mark of their ruling monarch, Carlos I. As the military fanfare played Tab's Koob off the boat, the Choco leader asked Grijalva to join him at his own court and allow a return in hospitality. Grijalva accepted and the two entourages prepared to leave Dupotonchan. We can likely imagine that Grijalva wasn't more than a little nervous, initially, to place his faith in these unknown natives, but it seems the two men had formed a genuine respect and friendship with each other, and Dr. Reyes noted that once the Tabaco had given his word, he was incapable of harming the visitors, so whether by customs or personal convictions, the Spanish were allowed to peacefully enter the Choco capital to a crowd of its citizens lining the banks of the river, jostling to get a glimpse of the strange metal visitors, rewarding the Spanish explorers' bravery with shouts of joy and throwing of flowers, shields, and pikes into the air, as if receiving a long-lost hero back home. These would have been the first indigenous courts that the Spanish would be privy to, 
and they noted the similarity to those found in their own homeland. The Choco leaders guess. The Chocos led their guests through the cobblestone streets, past their countless stone and lime houses, and into a large square that looked like it held a market. There, the host treated the Spanish to dancing, music, a parade, all topped off with a magnificent banquet that served stew of turkey, chirmole, a typical Mayan dish very similar to pico de gallo, turtle, and iguana. It would also now be the Choco's turn to pick up the bar tab as they introduced the Spanish to not only chocolate and chorot, which is a type of chocolate drink mixed with water and sweetened with piloncillo, or unrefined cane sugar, but also showed them our number one tipsy drink in Tabasco, pozol. The Spanish would return on their canoes feeling accomplished, full, and slightly tipsy. As June the 9th, 1518 came to a close, it would do so as one of the most successfully peaceful interactions between European and Mesoamerican native powers in the history of interactions between the two worlds. Alas, this was not to be the trend, and the unfortunate cracks in the relationship would appear as early as the following day, when at the farewell banquet, Grijalva took the opportunity to give a speech to his new friends, translated by Melkor and Juliano. In it, he tells the Chocos how he and his fellow explorers came from the other side of the sea to the east, from a powerful country called Spain, governed by a strong king who commanded vast armies that dominated the lands and seas named Charles I, who we simultaneously and more famously know by his Holy Roman Emperor name of Charles V. The next part I will quote from the sources as it is slightly more than a little inflammatory. Grijalva is said to have announced the following to the assembled Chocos. Quote, he had been sent by the great lord, that is the king, to make it known to them and to become friends, that they worshipped a unique and omnipotent God, whose son was Jesus Christ, who died on a cross, that theirs, the Chocos, idols, were grotesque, that they were worthless, and that they, the Potonchanos, should worship the God of the Spanish and declare themselves vassals of the powerful king and Lord Carlos I." End quote. I mean, talk about being an honest guest. Grijalva must have felt very comfortable with his new friend, the Tabaco, to lay on the conversion talk so thick. And his message was likely not lost on the priests and warriors in attendance, who gazed in confusion at the translators, then at Grijalva, and then at one another, sharing disapproving looks. They would likely not forget about this new supreme god the Spanish claimed rivaled their own fearsome deities, or the threats it posed to their world order. Surely a sign of things to come. The supreme puma of the Chocos and his fellow co nonetheless promised Grijalva that they would put his new ideas under consideration and have an answer for him upon his return. A return which would never occur. The time to part had finally come and the two leaders embraced one last time and said goodbye to each other, forever. They would never again meet, but as a final gesture of friendship, the Chontal pointed the Spanish towards the west, in the direction of a city they named Colua, painting vivid stories of huge quantities of gold held in the sacred city we now know as the Aztec-ruled city of Cholula, found in the modern-day state of Puebla. Whether done so intentionally or not, this simple act would have deep reverberations for the future, 
as it ultimately pointed the initial thrust of the Spanish conquest led by Cortes directly in the direction of the Aztec Empire, seeking out the stories of this fabled Colua. Hernán Cortés, landing a year later, would have a near-obsessive and single-minded mission to find this Colua, certain he would make his fortunes there. I like to think that the cunning Lord Puma knew exactly what he was doing and wondered how long his hated rivals, the Aztecs, would hold up against the Spanish guns he had just finished touring. Unfortunately, those same guns would be first pointed at his own people the very next year, likely making Tab's Kub wonder what all his gifts he gave were for in the first place. Moving on and leaving the mouth of the Grijalva, the Spanish force came within sight of the Nahua community of Awalulco, which was introduced in episode 4. The locals there brandished the spears at the ship from along the beaches, and the Spanish, likely still well-provisioned with supplies gifted by the Potonchanos, saw no need to risk another encounter, so they continued on. Next, they discovered the Tonal River, which they renamed the Rio San Antonio, and moved along to the river Coatzacoalcos, where they left Tabascan waters and borders, and so too did they leave the focus of our state. Grijalva would go on to discover various points in Veracruz, which we will describe in detail when we get to the state, but we will quickly discuss one of these discoveries as it had major implications for the events we will cover next. I have thus far failed to mention much about the other captains that accompanied Juan de Grijalva on his exploratory mission, those other captains being Alonso de Avila, Francisco de Montejo, and Pedro de Alvarado. Alonso and Francisco would, for the most part, stick to the plan. But Pedro de Alvarado, well, he and Grijalva just didn't seem to get along. Things got considerably more strained as an overeager Captain Pedro de Alvarado left the rest of the fleet behind and went ahead to discover the river Papaloapan in Veracruz, which he renamed the Rio Alvarado. The other three ships eventually caught up and waited at the mouth of said river for Alvarado to return from his little joyride up and down his newly christened body of water. The General Grijalva was not a happy man, and fuming scolded Alvarado for going up the river without his permission, ordering him never to go ahead on his own in case some accident happened and there was no one around to offer him help. But let's be honest, it likely also got under Grijalva's skin that Alvarado was gallivanting on his own and either stealing his thunder or causing trouble with the locals, which Grijalva had been very carefully avoiding. I mean, seriously though, who was in charge here after all? The tensions would seemingly cool when it was decided at the suggestion of navigator extraordinaire Anton Alaminos that Pedro would sail the San Sebastian back to Cuba with all of the gold, fabrics, and other non-edible gifts they had acquired from barter thus far deliver a report to Grijalva's uncle, Don Diego Velázquez, on the status of their journey, and return the wounded and sick men so they could recover from their injuries and illnesses, Pedro de Alvarado being counted among those who had come down with sickness. So it was decided, and off Pedro sailed, sick as a dog, and none too pleased with the performance of the young Captain General. It sure would be a shame if someone with a grudge went and told Diego Velázquez all sorts of tales about what exactly his nephew was getting up to in the newly discovered mainland while Grijalva wasn't around to defend himself, wouldn't it? In our next episode, 
Pedro de Alvarado will run squealing to Don Diego Velázquez about what exactly he saw his nephew getting up to in the newly discovered mainland while Grijalva wasn't around to defend himself. This would set off a chain of events that would see Grijalva leave Cuba for better prospects in Panama, of all places, still under the cruel thumb of Pedraida, and the reins of the exploration of Mexico begrudgingly handed to a man who was a complete polar opposite to the honest and sincere attitudes of Grijalva towards the natives, the infamous Hernán Cortés, who would try out a new tactic of diplomacy, the aggressive kind. So, to wrap things up, in today's episode, we covered the arrival of the Spanish onto the Mexican mainland, starting with Cristóbal Colón's voyage that resulted in the discovery of the Americas, specifically the island of Hispaniola, modern-day Dominican Republic and Haiti, in 1492. The Spanish would establish a strong foothold on Caribbean and Central American shores by the dawn of the 1600s. Don Diego Velázquez would emerge as the supreme leader of Cuba after pacifying it in 1512 and had on his island a who's who of famous Spanish conquistadors and future governors of Spanish colonies. The Caribbean Don would send out three famous expeditions chronicled by one Bernal Díaz del Castillo. The first, known as the Córdoba Expedition, as it was captained by Francisco Hernández de Córdoba, would accidentally discover the Mexican mainland but ultimately proved disastrous and fatal for its ill-fated captain. The second was captained by the more successful Juan de Grijalva, who displayed a rare consideration for the locals when dealing with them, treating them more like equals, whereas most of his contemporaries would see them as mere obstacles or tools to their own fame and fortunes. Somewhere in there we told the tale of the priest and the warrior, two Spanish castaways who managed to survive in vastly different ways and whose actual existence is still up for debate. And we have just left off Grijalva and the Spanish as they enter Veracruzan waters. Next episode, we will move it. Next episode, we will be moving on to the major events that transpired during the colonial. We will also introduce the most important We will also introduce the most important historical figure the Nahua city of Chicalango ever produced. Head briefly to Cuba to see what comes of the nefarious Pedro de Alvarado's return, and witness Cortés begin his march into history as the most famous conquistador ever, after making the dawn an offer he simply couldn't refuse. And so, I will see you all in the next episode. As always, thank you for listening. Gracias, y que viva bien. Adios. And goodbye for now. Vente, mi choco, quiero zapatear sobre el Grijalva que invita a soñar. Cuántos amores sabré conquistar cuando conozca este lindo boluar para bailar, para gozar. Es necesario saber zapatear. Yo no sé si seré el que mande nomás en su amor.